Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit, or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, remains an incurable yet well-manageable disease. With advances in antiretroviral therapy and a focus on public health efforts, new infections have been reduced by 54% since their peak in 1996. Despite significant strides in treatment and prevention, an estimated 38.4 million people were living with HIV in 2021, with about 1.5 million new infections occurring that year. Antiretroviral agents have remained the mainstay of both treatment and prevention since their introduction in the 1980s, with newer generations of medications improving on effectiveness, tolerability, and convenience for patients. Pharmacist Christopher Cahoon will review literature that led to the introduction of two drug regimens for patients with HIV, focusing on novel, long-acting injectable formulations of cabotegravir and wilpivirine, and highlighting populations for which special consideration may be warranted when using these agents. As a start, I want to ask, how many antiretroviral therapies for HIV do you all think have been approved in the past five years? We'll say since the start of 2018. As I was looking into this, I was thinking maybe somewhere in the realm of five, as one per year seemed pretty reasonable, and that was some of the answers I got when I asked around. In reality, however, there have been about 13 new antiretroviral medications approved in that time frame, including the first monoclonal antibody, and the first uh, subcutaneous injection, and the first intramuscular injection, which we'll be talking about today. So we'll focus really by talking about the two drug regimens that have been approved for HIV in recent years, and again, that is for the treatment of HIV, and then move on to our two major drugs of the day, which would be cabotegravir and rilpivirine, and the place that they hold in therapy as long-acting injectable formulations. We'll finalize the conversation by talking about select patient populations and how cabotegravir or rilpivirine might have different considerations in those populations. And first, let's talk about why it's important to actually discuss HIV in the first place. Therapies are pretty good nowadays, um, but the 2020 estimates in adults and adolescents in the United States showed an estimated 1.2 million people living with HIV in the United States, which is about one in every 300 individuals. It also showed about uh, over 30,000 new diagnoses of HIV each year with about 20,000 HIV or AIDS-related deaths. Unfortunately, things aren't much better on the worldwide scale, and the 2021 estimates in adults and adolescents showed about 38.4 million cases of people living with HIV worldwide, which is about one in every 200 individuals. There was also about 1.5 million new diagnoses per year with about 650,000 AIDS-related deaths. So while therapy is improve, or improving, we still have a lot of work to do for our patients, and there are a lot of people to treat. Some of the ways we've been improving our treatment and expanding access to care is through the 90-90-90 initiative, which was established by the Joint United Nations Program on HIV-AIDS, and it was established in 2014 and developed 2020 target goals for treating and preventing cases of HIV. It stipulated that we would uh, have a goal of having 90% of all patients living with HIV actually be aware of their status. 
with 90% of those individuals being actively on treatment and 90% of the treated individuals being virally suppressed. These were pretty lofty goals, um, especially at that time. And when we look at how things actually shook out, I have some bar graphs here. In the dark blue, you'll see those target goals with the lighter blue graphs showing the actual values that were seen. Again, the first goal of having patients aware of their status would have seen 90% of patients living with HIV know their status. And we got fairly close to this goal with 81% of people being actually aware of their status, which is about a 3.3 million difference in terms of the number of people who live with HIV but don't actually know their status just yet. The next goal would have seen 81% of patients living with HIV on treatment. We again came up a bit short with that goal with 67% of the population on treatment. And finally, the third goal would have seen 73% of patients living with HIV be virally suppressed. Again, a bit short here with 59% of the, the population actually virally suppressed. Um, so again, we didn't quite meet our goals here, but this is major strides in terms of the improvement in treatment. And we can now say that over half of all patients living with HIV are not just on treatment, but actually virally suppressed, which is great news. And now there actually has been uh, updates to the 90-90-90 initiative to become the 95-95-95 initiative, which would have a target goal of 2030. And how did we come to actually make these strides in terms of getting closer to these goals? Um, AIDS was, or HIV, AIDS related deaths, I should say, had been seen since the late 70s, but HIV-1 was not uh, determined to be the cause of AIDS until 1983. It was four years later when we saw the approval of our first ever HIV antiretroviral, which was the Dovidine in 1987. It was a nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, and for years, reverse transcription was the target mechanism of treatment until 1995, when we saw our first protease inhibitor, sequinavir. Just the following year, we started to see reports that three drug combination regimens were capable of um, producing undetectable viral loads in patients. And three drug regimens were then used as the standard from then on. Moving forward this time, 10 years later, we saw the approval of the first three-drug single-tablet regimen, which was a combination of efavirenz, emtricitabine, and tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate, with just the next year seeing our first integrase inhibitor, raltegravir, which was a major step forward in treatment since this is the now still one of the most commonly used class of medications. You'll see two empty boxes here, and these denote the kind of our talking points for the day, which will include two drug regimens, and then also the use of intramuscular injections. So to talk about how those or medications that I mentioned are actually acting, let's look at the HIV life cycle quickly. Again, infection will begin when an HIV virus binds to surface cell receptor proteins on a CD4 positive T cell, infuses with this, um, the membrane of that cell such that the genetic viral material can enter the cytoplasm of the cell. From there, it is reverse transcribed with reverse transcriptase so that the HIV viral RNA can be converted into viral DNA. And this serves as the major site of action for both the nucleoside and non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Once the viral DNA has been produced, it can move into the nucleus and be integrated into the human genome with the use of integrase enzymes, which is where our integrase strand transfer inhibitors or integrase inhibitors exert their mechanism. If it does make it into the human genome, however, it will be transcribed and translated into additional viral proteins, which then are capable of being assembled into an, a mature HIV virus and released to infect additional cells. 
And that assembly piece is where protease enzymes work to actually make the virus a mature virus. So protease inhibitors will block the complete maturation of a viral, um, viral particle. Again, our typical mechanism for treating patients, the predominant approach would be oral therapy with three medications, typically two nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, and then dealer's choice of one non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, an integrase inhibitor, or a protease inhibitor. Again, we tend to prefer those integrase inhibitors because they have absolutely terrific efficacy with a relatively safe uh, side effect profile. And now we'll talk about how we move from that three-drug predominant approach I mentioned into some two-drug approaches. These are not the first trials that were conducted for looking at two-drug regimens, but they were the first that actually led to approvals of two-drug agents for treatment of HIV. This is combined data from the SWORD-1 and SWORD-2 trials published by Abud and colleagues in Lancet HIV. These were identical 48-week, unblinded, non-inferiority randomized controlled trials comparing dolutegravirolpivirine to standard oral three-drug regimens. It was conducted in patients who had existing viral suppression, which was noted as less than 50 HIV RNA copies per milliliter that had been sustained in patients for at least six months. It enrolled over 1,000 patients in a one-to-one -one ratio and showed viral suppression rates of about 95% in both of the treatment groups, which did establish non-inferiority at week 48. Additionally, as a secondary endpoint, virological failure rates were determined to be just 1% in dolutegravirolpivirine dual therapy in the extension all the way through week 148. And as a result of this, dolutegravir was determined to be effective enough to show long-term viral suppression, and it was approved as the first ever two-drug switch therapy regimen uh, in patients who had existing sustained viral suppression. A follow-up study was done in dolutegravir and lamivudine rather than ropivirine, and this combination is also approved as a switch therapy. But the Gemini 1 and Gemini 2 trials published by Kahn and colleagues in the Journal of AIDS sought to see whether or not it would be effective in treatment-naive patients. These were 48-week, double-blinded, non-inferiority, randomized controlled trials comparing dolutegravir lamivudine to dolutegravir, tenofovir, disaproxyl fumarate, and um, emtricitabine. So again, treatment-naive patients, but the stipulation that they had to have had an HIV RNA count of less than 500,000 copies per milliliter. It enrolled about 1,441 patients in a one-to-one ratio and showed similar viral suppression rates between the two different groups, and also that viral suppression was achieved relatively quickly and similarly between the two different groups, with about 70% of patients achieving viral suppression by week four. Virological failure rates were also determined to be similar between the two groups at 2% for the two-drug regimen and 1% for the three-drug regimen, all the way through the extension at week 144. And from this, dolutegravir and lambivudine was approved as the first ever two-drug regimen for treatment-naive patients, but it stipulated that patients must have had a viral RNA count less than 500,000 copies per milliliter with no hepatitis B co-infection or known major resistances. Because of these stipulations and the requirements, patients did have to undergo some testing prior to starting therapy. But you might think it would be, so you might think it would be worth actually doing this testing so that we could get patients on two drugs rather than three. But there's actually a great deal of benefit to rapidly starting antiretroviral therapy. Some of the best benefits for rapidly starting antiretroviral therapy include greater patient engagement, better viral suppression, and better mortality risk. 
For the engagement component, there was greater patient engagement, meaning patients were more likely to attend their visits all the way through 12 months after starting antiretroviral therapy with a decreased risk for loss to follow-up of the hazards ratio of just 0.41 um, between the two different groups. Viral suppression rates were um, deemed to be more um, steady over time with viral suppression rates much lower at the 12 month mark in patients who rapidly started ART versus those who, or in addition, I should say, there was a shortened interval in terms of the time it took to achieve viral suppression, which was quite big, you can see, 138 days in those who did not rapidly start versus 47 days for those who did. Additionally, mortality benefit um, showed reduced risk for mortality all the way through 12 months again, with a relative risk between the two groups of 0.47 in favor of rapidly starting therapy. So from this, we see that the benefits of rapidly starting antiretroviral therapy are theoretically probably going to be better than the benefits you would get from more safely um, from a more safe side effect profile in a two drug regimen, given what we know about three drug regimens actually being fairly well tolerated. So getting back to our timeline, I just wanted to show that we now add another piece here. In 2017, again, we saw that first two drug switch therapy option, dolutegravir and ropivirine. And before I jump into what's next, let's cover where we are actually. Current oral medication regimens are well tolerated and highly efficacious. Combination tablets now exist and they're actually more common as just once daily tablets. And they're so effective, in fact, that they do achieve undetectable viral regimens or viral loads quite quickly and steadily. I mean, that means that patients are totally incapable of transmitting the virus to other individuals. So these are also a great way to treat patients to prevent additional cases. Some of the cons, however, show that patients do have to have a daily reminder of their diagnosis. And in some cases, these diagnoses or acquisitions can be quite traumatic or events that patients don't want to have to deal with being reminded of on a daily basis. So while once daily can seem convenient, it can actually be quite inconvenient and have mental health detriments to patients. Also, patients don't always want to let others know about their HIV diagnoses, and it can sometimes be difficult to hide those daily uh, medications from others. For instance, if you live with others or maybe going on a vacation with others, you would have to have these medications with you, but maybe conceal or hide them, which is not convenient. And from that, additional parenteral options such as long-term or long-acting intramuscular or subcutaneous injections would provide benefit. There's also some studies done being done for implantables, although I do want to caveat that those are none of those are approved just yet. Uh, this third piece here is that there are long-term side effects to the three drugs. Um, again, they're fairly well tolerated, but they have to be taken for life, which does expose patients to some long-term side effects. So additional two-drug therapy options would provide some benefit there. And ultimately, we would see then improved safety profiles, potential mental health benefits, and progress toward that 95-95-95 initiative. So now let's get into our two medications of the day. Cabotegravir is our integrase strand transfer inhibitor. It undergoes UGT1A1 metabolism, which I just mentioned to point out some drug-drug interaction considerations, as well as genetic considerations, although we're not quite to the point of using pharmacogenomics in patients just yet. The half-life would be about 41 hours for oral formulations, and then 5 to 11 weeks for the intramuscular formulations. Try to keep that number in mind, because we'll talk a bit more about pharmacokinetics throughout the presentation. For opivirine, this is a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor undergoing CYP3A4 metabolism. So again, some drug interaction considerations there. 
It also is best taken with meals and in an acidic environment. So acid suppressant medications would not be best with these medications. Half-life would be about 50 hours for oral formulations and 13 to 28 weeks for intramuscular formulations. Um, so really the limiting factor here is going to be the cabotegravir because it does have a shorter, shorter half-life for the intramuscular formulation. And let's take a quick peek then at these pharmacokinetics. So here we see two different graphs. We have our monthly dosing strategy on the top and our every other month dosing strategy on the bottom. The median um, cabotegravir concentration is going to be shown in the darker blue line with the upper and lower bounds of the 95% confidence interval shown in the lighter blue lines. The horizontal red line denotes the minimum target trough concentrations that patients would have to achieve to stay virally suppressed. The oral lead-in phase, which we'll talk about in a moment, is going to be denoted by the blue line in the left center of each graph, and each of the black triangles would show when an injectable dose is given. You can see for both of the dosing strategies that cabotegravir concentrations, at least the median, certainly stays well over those um, minimum target trough concentrations. The um, lower bound of the 95% interval does get kind of close to dropping below the minimum target trough for the every other month dosing strategy, but there is still some leeway there. Additionally, you can see this medication can exist around in patients for quite some time. Um, you know, anywhere from five to six weeks or five to six months would be the expected duration um, for the median there, but it can drop below therapeutic levels in as low as two to three months. Um, so adherence will be really important for patients, particularly those who are going to be undergoing the every other month dosing strategy. So here are those two um, dosing strategies just listed out. Again, they both do have an oral lead-in phase that will consist of um, cabotegravir and ropivirine oral formulations for four weeks. The monthly dosing strategy will then have an initiation of just one dose of the higher doses, followed by maintenance of monthly dosing at the standard dose. For the every other month dosing strategy, once a patient has completed the oral lead-in phase, they'll undergo initiation at the higher doses for two doses, one month apart, and then they'll stay on that higher dose for every other month dosing. So just some reference there, and that is exactly what was shown in the pharmacokinetic slide on the previous slide. Okay, so let's look at how we now got to the approval of these agents. The LATTE-2 was, was one of the earlier trials for cabotegravir and ropivirine, and it was published by Margulis and colleagues in The Lancet. It was a phase 2B open-label non-inferiority randomized controlled trial. It was done in treatment-naive adults with a new HIV diagnosis, but of note, there was a 20-week lead-in phase where patients were receiving approved treatment to get to undetectable viral loads before they were randomized to one of the three different comparator groups here. So for all intents and purposes, we were comparing these in patients who were treat or virally suppressed, I should say. So the first was uh, the first group, I should say, was the intramuscular cabotegravir pivirine at the four-week dosing strategy. The second was cabotegravir pivirine at the eight-week dosing strategy. And the third was oral cabotegravir, whoa, cabotegravir, abacavir, and lamivudine daily. Uh, the results it did enroll 286 patients in a two to two to one ratio, showing similar viral suppression rates between all three of the groups at week 96, which did establish non-inferiority for the intramuscular groups when comparing them as the, uh, to the oral group as the standard. This showed that 
it was a great proof of concept study, I should say, that really showed evidence for possible safe and efficacious doses, but it didn't enroll enough patients and it wasn't designed to immediately lead to approval. It did, however, provide some impetus for greater sample size and more standard comparators. And this brings us to really what the key um, trial for cabotegravir is, cabotegravir androlpivirine, which is the ATLAS trial published by Swindles and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was open-label, non-inferiority, randomized controlled trial comparing long-acting cabotegraviral pivirine to oral therapies. And of note, this did use the monthly dosing strategy after the four-week oral lead-in phase. Patients had to have been virally suppressed for at least six months, and it did enroll just over 600 patients in a one-to-one -one ratio between the two different groups. It showed similar viral suppression rates of 92.5% for the intramuscular group versus 95.5% for the oral standard therapy group at week 48, which did establish non-inferiority. Virological failure rates were also similar between the two groups at 1.6% and 1.0%. From this, long-acting cabotegravir was determined to be a suitable alternative as a switch therapy in patients who were already virally suppressed, and it was approved in term, or as a monthly dosing option at this point. The ATLAS-2M was a follow-up trial to that trial that was published in The Lancet, um, and this one really looked at comparing long-acting cabotegravir and rolpivirine regimens against one another head-to-head. -head. So it compared the long-acting formulations every four weeks versus every eight weeks, again, in patients who had existing viral suppression for at least six months. It enrolled 1,045 patients in a one-to-one ratio and had viral suppression rates of 94% in the four-week dosing group versus 93% in the eight-week dosing group at week 48, which did establish non-inferiority. Virological failure rates were also listed to be similar between the two groups. <clears throat> so from this, every other month dosing was determined to be non-inferior, and it was also um, approved as an alternative dosing strategy in patients with existing viral suppression. So its role in therapy, therefore, is that this is going to be a great option for many well-treated patients, and it is a very convenient switch therapy option in patients who meet criteria. Those criteria, again, are that patients must be virally suppressed for at least six months. They must not have a history of any kind of treatment failure or sus suspected resistances to either cabotegravir or rilpivirine, and they must not have an HBV co-infection. Um, this is not required, but it is best to assess patients for their propensity for adherence. Um, these injections have to be given in clinic. They are not approved for at-home use. So you want to assess patients' history of adherence and geographic stability to make sure that they will be able to make it in for their, or their doses, I should say. You also want to consider the mental health benefits that patients could reap from using cabotegravir and rilpivirine because the mental health benefits could provide to uh, proved to be a driver for them to want to stay on therapy, but we also want to make sure patients aren't averse to needles as we're considering these. Okay, our first question of the day. Please go to um, pollev.com slash MayoRx or use the Poll Everywhere app and use code MayoRx. Which of the following two drug regimens is approved in treatment-naive patients living with HIV? One would be dolutegravir and lamivudine, B, dolutegravir and rilpivirine, C, emtricitabine and tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate, or D, cabotegravir ropivirine. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. We're getting a few answers rolling in here. 
Um, whoopsie daisy. It looks like maybe I, I will draw a little more attention to this. So dolutegravir lamivudine is going to be the option that is approved for use in patients who are treatment naive. Um, it can also be used as a switch therapy, but tolutegravir pivirine is going to be reserved for patients as a switch therapy, which is also the case for patients or for cabotegravir and ropivirine. So both of those real pivirine options are going to be um, solely used as switch therapy options, but the dolutegravir lamivudine can be used um, in treatment naive patients if they meet the requirements we discussed. And then emtricitabine and tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate is going to be used as a pre-exposure prophylaxis regimen. So, so close. Let's see. And then our next question, two in a row, stay tuned. Um, which of the following would make a patient a great candidate for long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine? A would be established viral suppression. B is treatment naivete. C is history of poor oral medication adherence. And D is prior treatment failure while on dolutegravir and ropivirine. Okay, I'm seeing a similar number of results come in. Um, and I agree with the majority here that established viral suppression is really going to be what we need to make sure a patient is able to transition to long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine. Treatment naivete, um, again, cabotegravir pivirine is not approved in treatment naive patients, so that patient wouldn't make the best candidate. Uh, history of poor oral medication adherence is interesting. Typically, we want to reserve this for patients who have a good history of demonstrated adherence. Whoopsie. Um, so that might, there are studies being done to look at whether or not patients with an existing poor um, adherence history would actually benefit from the injections. But for now, we don't have any specific information that these patients would be great candidates. And then prior treatment failure while on dolutegraviral pivirine would suggest that a patient has some kind of resistance to real pivirine, and they would therefore not be a good candidate for cabotegraviral pivirine. Terrific job. Now we'll move on to talking about some of those select patient populations I wanted to discuss. These will include pregnant patients, transgender women, patients who are obese, and then patients with a hepatitis B co-infection. We'll start with our pregnant patients. Really the concern in our pregnant patients is going to be that we have to weigh the risk for congenital birth defects that really any medication can provide versus the risk for losing virological suppression if we choose to discontinue or switch therapy. So here we have, um, we'll start by talking about cabotegravir and then move over to real pivirine. For cabotegravir, there is limited data, but pregnancy cases that were identified in various 2, 3, and 3B studies found 26 cases of pregnancy, of which 11 were live births, and one was a, um, had a congenital abnormality. There is also the antiretroviral pregnancy registry, which collects data from pregnancies in patients who are taking HIV antiretrovirals. And it has so far received eight reports as of July 2022, with seven of those being live births and one having a congenital abnormality. For now, the recommendations are that if a patient is not on cabotegravir and becomes pregnant, then they should not be switched to cabotegravir. But if they are already on cabotegravir and become pregnant, then there is insufficient data to recommend for or against continuing cabotegravir. For opivirine, there have been much more reports to the antiretroviral pregnancy registry since it has been around much longer. So far, there have been 643 reported live births, with 12 cases having a congenital birth defect. This accounts for a prevalence rate of 1.87%, 
which is actually lower than the standard um, birth defect registries in the United States, the MACDP and the TBDR. Um, so we suspect, therefore, that at least oral ropivirine would not have any kind of impact on a patient's risk for um, congenital birth defects to the child. Another consideration with pregnancy, however, for ropivirine is the fact that it, there is impacts on volume of, volume of distribution when a patient becomes pregnant. We have seen that ropivirine plasma concentrations can decrease by as much as 50% when patients become pregnant, at least with the oral formulations. Because of that, we want to monitor viral loads more frequently in patients, and pregnant patients, I should say, just to make sure that we aren't losing viral suppression while they're continuing these agents. But right now, there is no recommendations for actually increasing the doses to try to account for those um, concentration decreases. Recommendations, therefore, if we had a patient who is not taking ropivirine um, but, be, but is pregnant, then the oral formulation of ropivirine would actually serve as a good alternative option. Um, for intramuscular formulations, however, it is not currently recommended due to lack of data. And then for patients who are taking ropivirine and become pregnant, we would want to continue oral formulations with increased viral load monitoring, but there's not sufficient data, again, to recommend for or against resuming intramuscular formulations. To kind of put all of this data together, general factors that would favor resuming would be the fact that long-acting injectable formulations are going to be present for months within the average patient, regardless um, of whether or not they're pregnant, and therefore that exposure to patients is already going to be existing. And by switching to another option, we might actually just be exposing to additional therapies. Also, if we continue the long-acting cabotegravir and opivirine, we're more likely to sustain viral suppression in patients. For the ropivirine component specifically, data favors resuming oral formulation, so while we can't extrapolate directly, we can make some kind of thoughts on whether or not oral or the intramuscular formulations would also be safe. Factors that would oppose resuming long-acting cabotegravir ropivirine would be the uncertainty of data for birth defects and long-acting injectable formulations. And for the ropivirine component, again, we might lose, or lose some degree of concentrations. Um, which might reduce efficacy. Um, one key kind of caveat I want to report here is that the antiretroviral pregnancy registry is a terrific resource, but it can't directly kind of pinpoint cause and effect just because these antiretroviral therapies are often given in combination with one another, so we're never really seeing the effects of just one medication. We'll now look at transgender considerations. And in this discussion, it's actually primarily geared towards transgender women, and this is not related to the actual transgender individual themselves, but the gender-affirming hormone therapy they would be taking. Um, the more feminizing hormones are thought to interact more with um, cabotegravir and ropivirine than are the masculinizing hormones. So we have a little bit more uh, concern for patients who are taking um, feminizing gender-affirming hormone therapy. We can see here, however, that in the major trials that led to approval of cabotegravir and opivirine, the LATTE2, ATLAS, and FLARE all allowed for the inclusion of transgender women regardless of whether or not they were on hormone therapy, and that there were no reported concerns for effectiveness or pharmacokinetics, and it was thought to be just safe for these individuals. There's another study that was published, which was the HPTN083. This was done in looking at cabotegravir monotherapy as pre-exposure prophylaxis. This study actually enrolled quite a significant number of transgender women at 100, or 570 patients included, of which about 60% were taking gender-affirming hormone therapy. 
and it showed a lower HIV incidence rate of like contracting HIV in transgender women with quantitative improvements in cabotegravir concentration, which further lends to the idea that we can probably just resume cabotegravir and rilpivirine just fine in our transgender women patients. We'll also talk a little bit more about the pharmacokinetics of cabotegravir and rilpivirine and the way that sex, BMI, and needle length can all contribute to concentration changes, but I really want to focus on that BMI and obesity component. There was a study done that looked at population pharmacokinetics and various factors that could impact pharmacokinetics for these agents. It was a model building data set that included over 1,600 patients from phase two and three trials, including the ATLAS and FLARE trials. It found mean BMI of 26.2 and a median BMI of 25.4, which was kind of used as the standard in building the model for how this medication would be absorbed in patients. The graph on the right here shows that as BMI increases, you're more likely to see decreased absorption and vice versa. And in fact, it's fairly significant. For every increase of five in a patient's BMI from that 25.4 median, we would expect to see absorption decrease by about 12%. And for every decrease of five in BMI, absorption would increase by about 20%. So some big effects there. In general, um, there was a post hoc analysis done in the ATLAS and ATLAS 2M trials that showed very low rates of confirmed virological failure, just 1.25%. Um, in patients taking cabotegraviral pivorine, but notably, BMI of greater than 30 um, was associated with an increased risk for confirmed virological failure. So female sex did not show to have an increased risk of confirmed virological failure, despite showing in the population pharmacokinetic studies that there was decreased absorption. Of note, there was a high association between female sex and a BMI over 30, and so that might have contributed to those decreased absorption factors. Additionally, needle length was not independently assessed for an impact on confirmed urological failure rate, although it did show that longer needle lengths are associated with greater absorption. The concern really in obesity as we boil it down is the fact that high BMI may prevent administration of the medications directly into the gluteus muscle, and that by using a two-inch needle, we may be able to more um, accurately reach that muscle. So indeed, the dosing and administration guide and the general recommendations would suggest that in a patient with a BMI of 30 or more, we would use a two-inch needle. And the risks associated with not with using a two-inch needle are much less than the risks of having confirmed virological failure by not actually using that greater needle length. So use that longer needle if we need to. Hepatitis B considerations in patients with HIV are important because we see similar populations at risk for contracting HIV and hepatitis B since both of the viruses are spread through sexual intercourse or blood contact. Additionally, they both require lifelong antiretroviral therapy and surveillance, but you can't use the same antiretroviral therapy for both of them in all cases. In fact, there's been 50 HIV medications that are approved and just eight hepatitis B medications that are approved, and only four can cover both of the two different viruses. This includes lamivudine, emtricitabine, and tenofovir, um, both of the formulations of tenofovir, I should say. Of note here, you'll see that neither cabotegravir nor olpivirine can treat hepatitis B, and therefore we wouldn't want to use cabotegravir olpivirine in patients who need hepatitis B treatment because we would end up just having to prescribe another oral daily medication anyway, which would kind of defeat the purpose of moving over to the cabotegravir olpivirine formulations. 
considerations would be that we maybe we want to test patients for hepatitis B before we move over to one of these options, just in case they did have underlying hepatitis B that was being covered up with um, a uh, HIV medication that was also suppressing hepatitis B. And we want to consider vaccinating patients against hepatitis B before starting these long-acting injectables um, if they haven't already been vaccinated or if they were shown to have low titers. Okay, our last question of the day. Um, in which of the following patients should long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine be avoided? A would be transgender women, B would be pregnant patients, C obese patients, and D patients co-infected with hepatitis B. We're again at a similar rate of answering, and I definitely agree with the majority here. Patients co-infected with hepatitis B are probably not going to be a good candidate for long-acting cabotegraviral pivirine, again, because we would have to get them on an oral daily medication regardless. Obese patients can absolutely use long-acting cabotegraviral and rilpivirine, but we do want to use that longer needle length. Pregnant patients is typically going to be a risk-benefit discussion, so that's kind of a complicated one there. Um, there is, again, insufficient data to recommend for or against continuing patients, um, but in general, some of the factors might suggest we want to continue. Um, and then transgender women, there is absolutely no um, concerns with continuing in transgender women right now. Okay, I want to end with just some quick practical considerations regarding how these, are, these medications are implemented in practice. Um, you can imagine that missing doses um, would maybe pose some concerns for clinicians. And then I also want to talk a bit about that oral induction phase. So with missing doses, there was in all of the trials that were conducted in long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine, a 14-day window of plus or minus seven from the scheduled date around when we would want to provide the next administration. Um, if we were to kind of go around that window, we do still resume with the original scheduled date. And if they do kind of go beyond that window, we do need to do another reload of the in intramuscular initiation. Um, because of that, we might consider early scheduling because there is some leeway. And if a patient were to accidentally miss a, an appointment, we do still have some wiggle room there. But again, adherence is going to be essential for this because otherwise patients are going to have to undergo those um, reloads kind of over and over. So again, adherence is going to be a really big thing and it can be important because you have to do these in office. The oral bridging is an interesting one. Oral cabotegravir and rilpivirine has been approved, as you can see, with the lead-in phase. Um, and in cases, it can be used as a sort of bridge when extended duration misses are anticipated well ahead of time, maybe for a vacation or something like that. Um, when this is done, however, we would need to counsel patients on some oral cabotegravirol pivirine considerations, specifically with the rilpivirine, because I had mentioned these have to be taken with meals, and you cannot use any kind of acid-suppressing medications while you're taking rilpivirine. I will note that these are not these kind of oral bridges are not particularly easy to access. Um, so these have to be done well in advance, and even then it can be kind of challenging, but in certain cases it can be an option. And then there is the latitude trial, uh, which is that trial I kind of alluded to earlier, which is really assessing efficacy in patients who have a history of suboptimal adherence. So we can hopefully get some more data in the near future about whether or not cabotegravir and rilpivirine would be a good option in patients with a history of poor adherence. 
I also want to talk about the oral induction. So in the pharmacokinetic graph I showed earlier, it looked like we were using that oral lead-in phase to get to pharmacotherapeutic or pharmacokinetic concentrations, but really it was used to actually assess the tolerability of these two medications. You can imagine if we just went straight to injecting a patient with cabotegraviral piverine and they had an allergy to that medication, it would be quite detrimental since it would last in their body for several weeks or even months. Um, that said, the ATLAS, FLARE, and LATTE trials all noted minimal intolerances to cabotegraviral piverine, and the FLARE trial extension actually allowed patients to forego oral in induction and found no cases of uh, intolerance to any of the patients. With this, we ultimately kind of have this risk-benefit, which is that the oral lead-in phase does allow us to address safety concerns, but the direct-to-eject has no oral administration, so no concerns with that real pivoting dosing timing. And you also don't have the general scheduling inconvenience of having to do daily medications. Um, ultimately, this is patient preference. We can counsel patients on the risks and benefits. And nowadays, we actually find that most patients choose to go with the direct-to-inject method and forego that oral lead-in phase. Additionally, that oral lead-in phase has been removed as an FDA requirement. The future directions, I mentioned the LATITUDE trial is looking at the use of cabotegraviral pivoring and suboptimal adherence, and there are also some studies that look, are looking at cabotegraviral pivoring in patients who are not virally suppressed. Additionally, um, home injection studies are being done to see whether or not out-of-office and in-home um, administration of cabotegraviral pivoring would show similar benefits. But again, it's not approved just yet. Hopefully that would be soon on the horizon to provide a better option for adherence. And key takeaways then is that cabotegraviral pivoring is used as a switch therapy option, specifically in virally suppressed patients, that we do want to address any kind of patient concerns related to select populations, and that we do have some different kind of dosing schedules patients can choose from, including forgoing the oral lead-in induction phase and doing every month versus every other month dosing, although most patients do forego the oral lead-in phase and choose every other month dosing for fairly obvious reasons. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.